0: Hi, listeners. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Physiotype Podcast. Today, we have a research breakdown. We're going to be talking about two papers. Alex will be presenting uh, the first paper, and I'll be be presenting the second. Speaking for myself, I did not read the first paper at all, so... Uh, it's going to be like, I'm a listener right here with you. Um, I'll have all the same questions the audience does. And, uh, right now I'm really just trying to make my laziness and unpreparedness look like a, uh, positive trait, you know, but it, it is a little bit because, um, I'll be coming at this, uh, just as, uh, ignorant on the paper as all listeners Wow, that really sounds like I'm talking down to the listeners, doesn't it? <laughs> Ignorance isn't a bad thing. We're all ignorant on particular subjects. I'm ignorant on this this paper.
1: <laughs> in, in Colby's defense, I have only skimmed the notes he took on the other paper. I haven't actually looked at the other paper. Um, so we're on the same boat, just opposite ends of the same boat. All right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Ooh. Does that mean you? And we'll, I'll cut this, but does that mean you didn't get to read the discussion and the supplemental info? Correct. All right, I guess we'll be discovering that part <sighs> together.
0: <laughs> I had, I really did have a, I had a very busy week at work, so I apologize. I believe you.
1: I believe you. I believe you. It's fine. <laughs>
0: I'm not saying that it was literally impossible for me to do that. I'm just saying I think if you knew my life, that you would understand why i chose to be lazy for an hour instead of reading that paper <laughs>
1: these these research papers take forever to prepare for that's the thing like it's not an easy read and especially this one it was just like every time i tried to read it my brain fried a little bit more inside so
0: yeah um i mean i'm a, anyways i'm a young millennial and you're a very young millennial young you're like barely a millennial you're
1: an old millennial and i'm a young millennial no, no. Because no. you're
0: older than me. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No,
0: well, millennials are 80 to 95, and I'm 91, and you're 95, so we're both young.
1: It's 80 to 95? Yeah. What? Yeah. That's
0: terrible. Are you sure? So you're almost a Gen I Xer. I my point, like that. Anyways, my point, my point being, I ain't good at reading too much. I'll just like to watch those 30-second YouTube bids. <laughs> no i do think there's something to it like i I do like i don't know i read less than i did when i was a kid and i don't know why that is like i'm my adhd seems worse i'm not sure if it's just environmental or yeah i'm
1: not sure why i i I think it's environmental because i used to read novels after novels i used to read boring dry big books for fun like i i used to even like 5 years ago I was reading Wikipedia for fun yeah yeah uh frequently and now it's it's like eh, maybe I'll read a Wikipedia article if it's short and even then I'm usually just skimming to what I assume will be the impor- the interesting parts later on I still read Wikipedia
0: so. but yeah I uh, stopped I don't know I haven't been like reading for pleasure much at all um The very first book I read was like uh dude, no Lord of the Rings when I was like god I must have been like 10 and that was a gruesome, you know, that was a gruesome trilogy to get through when you're 10. Just I'm mean, just meaning it's like a, those are thick hard books to read. It was more about duty than pleasure.
1: Um anyways. <laughs> who were you at, who who who's to who were you indebted to that you uh you had to perform this this arduous duty as a 10-year-old? Oh,
0: myself, of course. You know, I got to prove that I'm oh, smart and can read a trilogy and, you know, <laughs>
1: Not that not
0: that reading a trilogy should really be like a real pin in your you know a real feather in your cap wow <laughs>
1: he read for, hey, several for a hours. it is, though for a ten year old yeah yeah that's impressive you know if i think you could you could probably gloat to your fellow fellow ten year old friends about that pretty easily there you go there you go <laughs> all
0: right <laughs> why don't we all get right. on with your paper while I try and stop distracting us
1: so the first paper is titled Eye Movements During Everyday Behavior Predict Personality Traits. Um, it's uh, written by Sabrina Hope and co. Uh, and it's done out of a few different universities. The primary one being um, University of Stuttgart in Germany. Stuttgart. 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 Um, but there's other universities that are also uh, affiliated with this. There's a few of them. I won't list them all. Yeah. So uh, I guess before going into this, it, it should be noted that we've maybe talked about eye movement for physiotyping like once or twice in all this time we've been doing this. Um, You're right. It's very, and I don't think yeah, we've not talked about it much and I don't know why I th- think we've just been focused on other stuff. Um, I don't see any reason why eye movement couldn't be predictive of something. I just think we're too busy looking at a face width and uh, iris color to be thinking about that. But um, this felt this felt very relevant because although it's not a although it's not a static facial feature, it is something that's it is a behavior that we have that seems fairly if not completely unconscious when we're going about our day to day life. Um, So if there's a connection to personality at all, you would expect it to be fairly indicative because of that. Um, it seems like it wouldn't yeah. be that so, socialized. Yeah. They don't talk about it here in the paper, but, like, there's definitely a difference between, like, eye movement when talking to someone else and, like, gesturing, uh, which they weren't measuring here. They were measuring eye movement when a subject is just walking around, buying something at a store, and walking back to the lab. I, I think there's a lot of potential here. Um... So that's basically what they did. They took the eye movements from 42 participants. Uh, they, they got these participants. They put these like fancy headset goggle things that like record their eyes and record what the eyes are doing at any given moment. They sent them off to buy something at the cafeteria and recorded every eye movement they made on the way to the cafeteria while they were inside the cafeteria buying stuff and on the way back. And then after that, they made them take personality tests. Um, They took the big five. They took three tests. They took the Neo five-factor inventory, which is basically a big five test. Um, They took a perceptual curiosity test, which is meant to assess a person's interest in novel perceptual stimulation and visual sensory inspection. And they had them take the curiosity and exploration inventory, which is just a questionnaire meant to assess curiosity.
0: So it was three tests they took. And it seems like the last two tests would be very associated with openness in general, right? They're kind of those are kind of like open openness or testing a little bit.
1: The last one is like openness. I think it's it felt I can't say this for a fact. But it felt similar to openness in like the big five sense of the word. But the second one, um, it's measuring more about like the stimulation from um, uh, external stimulus.
0: So like physical stimulation or like just.
1: Right. At least the way it's worded here, that's what it seems like. The exact wording is the second one is perceptual curiosity, a 16 item questionnaire Assessing a person's interest in novel perceptual stimulation and visual sensory inspection.
0: So the second one seems a little more biological, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of a direct reference to how the person's interacting with their environment. And much less of a how does this person interact with concepts or ideas, things like that. I I think we should take a closer look at these two tests because I've never heard of them before. But apparently they're... Notable enough for these people to be using here and for other people who have done similar tests, but in laboratory setting to have also used. So I guess that's something I forgot to mention is that there have been other tests like this done, but, uh, this was the first one that was done in like a real world setting. Others had been done by like putting students in front of like a screen and measuring what they looked at and how their eyes moved when watching something on a TV screen or a computer screen or in some kind of laboratory setting. So this was the first time of just letting them go do their thing, look around, move their head, um, and come back and just see what the results were. If you scroll down to figure one, you'll see that, um, and I, oh, I forgot to mention, they did have a machine learning involved in this. So they had, they fed a machine, uh, information and their predicted values based on laboratory, um. Results in previous testing. Uh, So they fed that to machines. And I don't understand the exact mechanics of how it all worked. But using the machine, using the AI, the AI was able to predict neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and the second test, which was the perceptual curiosity test, uh, above chance, just using eye motions. So was that
0: the whole... Is this like a computer science department was at the point or was that kind of like I've seen people use like additionally we trained an AI on this and we saw that the AI was able to predict. So it was the whole thing about the AI or um, was that just kind of like a little side off side experiment they did?
1: It was more like that was a tool that they were using to notice the patterns. OK,
0: I always find it interesting when they like find obviously obvious correlations and they even know what those correlations are and yet they still bother to train like a neural network or some type of AI on it because like, you know what it's going to do. Like if these d- independent variables do you, you, you already did your like regression analysis and all, all all your, all your fancy math. And now you know that these variables are highly correlated with the, you know, the, the, the independent oh, variable. I see what you're why saying. Why are you, why yeah. are you making a AI do the same thing. You know it's going to find those and it's going to use those. So I'm just curious. So in
1: previous previous laboratory experiments, what they had done was they were looking to predict eye movement based on how students had tested on various personality tests. So what they were trying to do here and what they used the AI to do was to demonstrate that you could do the opposite, that you could predict someone's personality if you fed... Their their eye movement to this machine. Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: I, I that was in my paper too. They just did. They just kind of do that just to make sure that you can do it in reverse too,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So they were able to predict neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and PCS, which, if for everyone who forgot, including myself, stands for perceptual curiosity. I don't know what the S stands for. Above average um they had they had like you know when they had the students take the test, they had put the results into three blocks you know the third lowest the score in neuroticism were in block one the third highest was in block three and then everyone in the middle was in block two and so that's what they were looking to predict is which block a student would fall under so not
0: super um accurate but still impressive if if you do it over enough numbers and enough um accuracy results right right and it seemed based on effect sizes that you glanced at and their general language it did seem impressive the the ability yeah they're able to predict these big five results
1: yeah yeah it seemed like it to me um i believe neuroticism was at 0.4 and extraversion those are the effect sizes highlighted somewhere i'm looking at figure one right now okay sorry let me scroll that's the f so those are the f1 scores you know what an f1 score is Mm mm-hmm shows the mean F1 score of our classifier as well as all the baselines of each trait. So I'm I'm skipping down to results in number three. Figure 1 shows the mean F1 score for our classifier as well as for all baselines for each trait. As can be seen from the figure, our classifier performs well above chance. That is, confidence intervals do not overlap with any of the baseline performances. For neuroticism, 40.3%. Extroversion, 48.6%. Agreeableness forty five point nine percent, conscientiousness forty three point one percent, and perceptual curiosity thirty seven point one percent.
0: To be honest, I, I what's the unit of these? This is confidence intervals, or it might be correlation, or is that the same um, thing? To be honest, I just I don't know confidence intervals or correlations very well, so I don't really know like how impressive that is. But uh, it's not a big deal. Uh-huh. I just.
1: My yeah. my my impression was that um, anything below thirty three point three percent would be random chance, and anything above thirty three point three percent would be better than okay. random. Okay,
0: you know what I mean? Like I just don't intuit the uh, those figures. Like effect size, I now intuit because I like taught myself exactly how it's calculated. But these, I still need to, you know. There's like these few calculations that you kind of just need to like. Get better yeah, intuiting. Yeah. I know what and you mean. I don't like. I don't like just taking. They said it was good. I don't know. Is forty eight percent actually good? I'm not. I haven't like looked at these enough to, and I haven't like figured out
1: how it's actually calculated. So it's not. You know how. You know how I am. I just here. I'll read the quick definition. The F one score is a measure of a test accuracy. It is calculated for the precision and recall of the test, where the precision is the number of correctly identified positive results divided by the total n- number of. Or by the number of all positive results. Oh. Including those not identified correctly. And then you recall... The recall is the number of correctly identified positive results divided by the number of all samples.
0: Oh, okay, that seems... I'll, I'll, like, spend another minute looking at that, but that sounds pretty straightforward. Cool. I'll, I'll uh... It'll be a nice little tool to have in my brain bucket. F1. <laughs> all right, carry on.
1: And then if you scroll down two, um, so like halfway through, and this is where I need your help. Halfway through the, the, um, the results. So on the next page of the results and page five underneath the figure, it says figure two shows, blah, 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 blah. Skip that paragraph. The second paragraph that says, as can all, as can be seen from figure two, five of the 19 most important features are linked in N Do you know what engrams are? No. And normally this is the kind of thing I would just skip because it's like, oh, I don't know what it means. So it's not important, but it becomes relevant in the chart that's later.
0: They define it right there. Engrams, which describe a series of in saccades. So does that mean one engram means one saccade? I have no idea.
1: Because I know what a a saccade is or saccade. I don't know how to pronounce it.
0: Well, what is a saccade?
1: It's a quick eye movement from one point to a different point. Oh. So is one n-gram mean one saccade happened?
0: Mm, in the field of computational linguistics and probability an n-gram is a contiguous sequence of n items from a given sample of text or speech. The items can be phonemes, syllables, letters, words or base pairs according to the application. The n-grams typically are collected from a text or spe- speech corpus. Uh...
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> this becomes important only because some of the most predictive aspects of this were one gram saccade movements. Now, I want to say that that means single saccades, like just one saccade happened in a set. As opposed to like uh, maybe a three gram saccade oh, movement would I think, be like three mo- three movements. I think
0: you're right. So a five gram would be... Five cicades in a row.
1: Yeah, like one, two, three, four, five. As I move my, I think eyes. so.
0: I think so too. So the the higher the n of gram, that means you had more sequential uh, cicades. Or I have no. It's a double C. I never know how to pronounce those. But yeah,
1: I don't either. I'm pretty sure you're right. Okay, I hope so because that's how I'm gonna treat it from here on out. All right, sounds good. Basically, then if you look at Figure Two, the top section of Figure Two is all the stuff that they looked for in. Th- Uh, in this study here and then the bottom part of figure two is stuff that's been looked for in other in laboratory settings so not stuff that they actually looked at but things that they that were looked at in laboratory settings and then it's ranked from lowest importance to highest importance when you averaged across all the traits Um, i don't know why they did that it was really confusing to me Uh, but I I guess it looks nicer. So I can kind of understand with that said, that means if you look at the bottom of the first half of figure two, uh, most frequent one gram saccade movements or saccade movements, whatever, uh, that related the highest that related highly to neuroticism also related highly to extroversion also related pretty highly to openness and a little less to agreeableness, so on and so forth. You see, you see what's going on there with the...
0: Yes, I do now. Okay, got it. So least frequent one gram sac movement. They're just saying that this is the least frequent, right? It predicted CEI the most. And then... Oh, wait a minute. What's the difference between... Look at the top and bottom. Least frequent one gram sac movement and most frequent one gram sac movement. They're not defining those. So maybe... The,
1: in the supplemental information, I think they define... Some so of it these. must just be, a, sure must just be like a
0: quadrant or something difference, probably like, oh, the f- least frequent is the mm-hmm. one up to the top left and the most frequent is to top right or
1: something like that, maybe. Maybe, maybe, because they, they did also have a heat map that of like um, it was an eight by eight grid that they had, basically. So like if a person was looking under top left, they were looking at uh, heat map one. And then if they were looking at their top right, they were looking at heat map eight. Okay. So I think it was zero through seven. So basically they measured where,
0: where the person was actually looking in their field of vision. And they also measured how many saccades they had and what kind of saccades they had. Okay. And these, and so there ended up being like what, 20 of these things they measured. And then these indicated uh, neuroticism, extroversion, et cetera. Right. And that's basically the figure that me and Alex are looking
1: at. I know it's a lot of data and it's like, it's, hard for my brain to interpret but I'm able to pick out the patterns just in the diagram like it, I find it interesting that especially like the first the bottom 4, 5, 6 like those all seem like the most useful if you were to try to turn this into some kind of practical usage
0: right like if you could only measure one thing you'd measure what they call most frequent 1 gram sac movement and because that's highly indicative of everything it looks like wow do you think the listeners <laughs>
1: Oh, they have blink rate, too. Yeah, they have blink rate as well. Um, let me see. Minimum blink rate duration. <gasps> blink rate is most indicative of neuroticism, it looks like, right? Uh, neuroticism and conscientiousness, if I'm understanding this correctly. I mean, that kind of matches a little bit with, like, I'm, I'm picturing, like, older stjs blinking like crazy as they talk kind Mm, of thing yes okay
0: listeners think of those really neurotic people uh they're always rapid blinkers aren't they alex seems like it i don't know like complete anecdote but very strong feelings uh i i I vibe with that that well yes i would not be surprised if that is definitely the truth
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, like this might be I don't want to say it's the first. I think it is, actually. This might be the first research paper that we've reviewed that we could take some of this information and try to apply it to physiotype directly. Yeah, like, blink, yeah. blink rate? Like, that feels like something we should definitely think about more. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The, the saccade movement? Like, that's harder to see. That's the only thing. That's harder to see because your eyes are pretty small. And, like, unless you're, like, looking straight at your eye, like, you don't know w- really which where the eye is moving to. Um, But still, like, that might be useful.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if blink rate is correlated with uh, meta.
1: Yeah, this is interesting stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed now that we never looked at eye movement more closely before. I know, I know. Minimum
0: blink duration. That's sick. Actually, you know what's funny? I've been like, the way that we've been finding these research articles is basically like, I mean, on my hand, I've just been Googling terms that relate to craniofacial features and behavior, right? And there's plenty of studies about that. But why not, like, choose one of our specific uh, indicators that we think is very strong? For instance, busygomatic uh, width to height ratio or uh, eye inset level and see if there's any papers on those specific things. Because I'm sure there are a few and those would be, you know, more directly applicable to physiotype.
1: I agree. I agree. Yeah. This is an exciting paper, though. This one I found because I was looking... I was trying to find... Anything that was related to iris, iris color and stroma. I couldn't find anything about the iris, but I found this paper. So, okay. This is, this is an interesting figure. Um, table S2 is correlation coefficients between personality score rates, ranges for each trait and features extracted from a sliding window with the length of 15 seconds. The features listed in the table form the smallest set that contains the 15 features with the highest correlations for each trait these 15 coefficients are highlighted in bold the engram features are called sac sac movements if they were based on saccades only and sf if fixations were considered as well the numbers in bold are the 15 coefficients are highlighted in bold so the, oh so the coefficients are in bold the with the highest correlations for each trait blink rate was related to neuroticism and perceptive curiosity to a high degree hmm. these correlation fictions were describe properties of the collected data and in contrast to feature important scores figure two in the main okay so these were collected independently of the machine learning process okay that's why that's why this thing exists yeah, yeah, yeah. so makes the sense. machine found a closer correlation or a higher correlation for conscientiousness and blink rate than the humans did basically is what i'm understanding from this and then the heat map stuff like i think the heat map stuff could be interesting as well like maybe not trying to look at someone's eyes and trying to figure out where they're looking in an eight by eight grid but if you could if you could separate it into like quartiles right like oh if they're looking on their top left very often maybe they're high in such and such function or if they're looking on the bottom right often maybe you know I don't know how likely that is to be the case, but that could be useful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think that's it for me for this paper, unless you have any other questions about it.
0: Um no. I'm good. Uh they clearly found some high correlations. That's this is like pretty pretty flippin' awesome.
1: Yeah. I agree. I agree.
0: I mean, man, once you combine everything, like think of all these different papers that we've been that we've been reading and imagine combining you know everything and all of them like you could come up with a real model you know like what we do at physiotype you could come up with something that good um with just statistical data and machine learning you know um Mm -hmm. i mean obviously you could right otherwise physiotype wouldn't be real but i'm just saying like i think already with the data we have you could come up with uh facial recognition and machine learning uh combined with all these you know craniofacial and even non um, facial characteristics and you could have like a good a decent model of behavior with just the existing um research i think
1: it's incredible i i agree i agree i'm i'm almost surprised no one has tried to do this i I mean maybe someone has tried to do it but if they have it hasn't become public knowledge we haven't heard about it like it's interesting i i have i have to imagine that there's governments that are trying to do this like, yes, this could be so useful as a surveillance tool.
0: Yeah, there's there's no way that uh, <laughs> there's not there's no way that the military doesn't have at least like a couple people at one time working on seeing if they can exploit this research to benefit them. The military is very good about uh, doing crazy sounding things that actually might work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they're mm-hmm. not afraid to do odd things, as, as we all as we all know. <laughs> and uh, this is yeah. an odd thing that might just work. I really, what I would love to do is just do like a giant meta analysis of like every single just like behavior, physical feature correlation paper ever. And see if you could come up with like a consistent model with all those using a meta analysis. It would be a monumental project because there's so many of them. And there's such, they're often like slightly different fields even. And they talk about, they're not necessarily super related to each other it, except for that they're all about, you know, physical characteristics and behavior. But I think you could come up with something amazing if you did just like this huge meta-analysis of everything.
1: I agree. We need a uh, we need a, an SJ or an NJ to uh, to come in and do all this stuff and then let us know what they find. <laughs>
0: or just, you know, give me enough Adderall and give me a year and I'll do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the main
0: problem is I have a job right now. That's really, you know, that's jobs the worst I know what was I thinking (laughs) okay Um, yeah let's move on to the second paper I guess
1: if you're enjoying the episode we highly recommend you join our Patreon Um, on the Patreon we have access to exclusive pre and post show conversations on top of that all of our blog posts And podcast episodes are released on the Patreon early for you to enjoy. So, if you're looking for a way to contribute, please think about joining the Patreon. Uh, Thank you to everyone who is on Patreon. We appreciate your support. Now, uh, let's keep listening.
0: Did you read this paper, Alex? Okay. I did not. I barely read your notes. Well, then we're in similar boats. Um. So the title of this second paper that we're going to uh break down is similar neural responses predict friendship. And indeed after reading the paper I have uh have to agree with him that they do. Um which is pretty cool. I mean every single one every almost every single time I read one of these papers I'm like holy crap this is incredible. So yeah this is actually a pretty fun paper to read. Pretty impressive results. So yeah, let me just go over my notes. I kind of tried to explicate everything in you know four hundred words, but basically they kind of they go through their uh, introductory statements, you know, as these papers often do, saying like, oh, we all know this. So there's been studies that talk about this before. It's also an intuitive experience that we all have, you know. They they there's they're saying there's ample evidence. Homophily is an extremely common phenomenon among humans, basically, and homophily is just the tendency of humans to associate with humans that they have uh, similarities with basically. Um, so this sounds obvious, but if you think about it from a very like, uh, first principles or a, like prior and probability perspective, it's not necessarily going to be true, but it, it, it of course is, you actually do end up associating with people who are more similar to you. The data has borne this out pretty well, apparently. Um, And even though there's times where it's more, you get more utility from associating with people who um, aren't similar to you, for instance, in an office where you need people of lots of different uh, skills, um, that's often necessary to have um, non-homophilic relationships. Yet, when you just let people do what they want, homophily is extremely common. Um, The opposite is called heterophily. It's considerably more rare. They talk about. Um, they say most studies interested in homophily have delved into the similarities inside groups, as regards to visual demographics. Um, so that's generally what the research has been focused on now, up until this point. So they're looking at things that you can literally tell from just looking at a person, um, and they're generally things that you would consider demographics, so um, age, gender, nationality, ethnicity, those kinds of things. And there is research on. Uh, similarities of visual demographics inside uh, homophilic groups and then to a lesser extent they have been measuring behavior within homophilic groups um they go on to talk about how extroversion and openness um we already have compelling evidence that those exhibit social assort asortity which means that they're more similar among individuals who are friends rather than individuals who are not friends basically so that means if you have friends I see, I see. uh they're more likely to be similar in your extroversion level and more likely to be similar to your openness level compared to just random people you choose in the street. Um,
1: and that's all. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that makes sense, right? If you want to go do something, um, with someone and you know, you're a person that really loves new experiences. You're, you're, you're going to not be hanging out so much with the person who's not going with you to do the things. Like that's like a, it yeah, is it's quite process. easy to
0: understand oh. the actual mechanism that causes this, but it's always nice to actually have the data there, right? Um, and so, yeah, they basically just went on talking mm-hmm. about the general support for what they were, their, their hypothesis. Um, and basically, uh, their research showed that neural response similarity when viewing a naturalistic audiovisual movie is higher the closer two individuals are in a social network. So the brain areas where they say that those most similarities, sorry, the brain areas where they say most similarities are, um, are the regions in the brain associated with, uh, attentional allocation, narrative interpretation, and effective responding.
1: Did they, did they give any further, um, explanation? They went the on to
0: explain the exact regions of the brain that showed the most similarity among, uh, people among friends. Um, and I believe maybe in some supplemental information, they, they I imagine that you can just look up which areas of the brain are correlated with attentional allocation or whatever. And I didn't look at all the supplemental information, but uh, one would assume that you could find that out. Um, but that's yeah. what their claim is. Yeah. Th- basically, they saw, oh, this region of the brain is the most, mm-hmm. uh, has the highest correlation. And we know that this region of the brain is associated with, you know.
1: Right, right, right. I I. That'd be a good thing to look into later. I'd I'd be curious as to what they mean by mm-hmm. narrative interpretation. Yeah.
0: And I don't think they actually gave uh like yeah. a, they don't they didn't try to have a justification for why they saw more correlation in those areas of the brain. I don't think in this paper, but that would be interesting to look into as well. That mm-hmm. I think you'd find yeah you'd find a reason for it, obviously. Um, but I think you'd find it quickly. Is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. let me um just kind of like, go through what the what the actual experiment was, um. So this whole paper is kind of like um, it's like a little bit of network science. You know, um, you can kind of like get into networks, and they actually get kind of complicated. And you can do some fun math with it and consider how people are connected in a network, um, or, or how nodes are connected in a network. In this case, the nodes are people. But you could say something like, uh, "There's a network of this many people, and how long does it take from this node to get to this node? How many other nodes does it have to touch to touch that node?" That's kind of the thinking that these network people do. Um, So anyways, they got 279 students. They had them fill out a questionnaire. um, And this was to determine the dynamic of the network of the 279 students. So a primary importance in the questionnaire was whether two people mutually agreed they were friends. So basically they now have 279 uh, nodes in this network, which are people, and they know how all the nodes are related. Are these two people? Do these two people both think they're friends? Does one of them think they're friends, and not the other one, or do neither of them think that they're friends? Kind of. And even though they had two hundred seventy nine students in the network, they only took forty two students um, who participated in an experiment where um, they were actually uh, took an fMRI scan while they watched uh, some some movie clips, basically. But it was at first I was kind of confused, but it makes sense because these 42 students, they are all connected in some way. So even some of those students, uh, so some of those students might not be friends at all, but because you have the larger scope, you can say how closely those two students are not connected. That's why it's important to have a larger,
1: yeah, right. They're so friends. You, you actually friends have to have kind of thing to do
0: this kind of thing. You have to measure the network larger than the actual experiment you're doing, because you have to have a larger network to actually be able to connect, uh,
1: everyone hopefully that makes sense i see i see so yeah 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 they they needed they needed a group of people that were all connected they couldn't they couldn't use all 279 in case maybe there's you know maybe there's three different groups of people that are all connected but no those three groups don't connect together Um,
0: an important word uh, in this is dyads very useful dyad just means um the relationship uh between two nodes basically or two people in this case So they had 279 students. Mm. Actually, no, they had 42 students. That's what results in 861 dyads. Um, So if you did the math on that, you would come up with 861. Um, They measured 80 regions in the brain for each participant. So 42 students, Uh 861 dyads, and they measured 80 regions in the brain while each student watched um just short television clips um and these clips were curated in such a way such that the student was unlikely to have personal feelings about the clip you know what i mean you're not going to want to have your cousin on this television show that you're watching because that's going to be different um yeah so they didn't these are fmri scans um and they went on to talk about what they equated for, you know, the, the relevant variables that they're considering. So they equated for nationality, ethnicity, gender, age, even handedness, because apparently there's existing data that shows handedness is indicative of uh, fMRI similarities. Um, and then they just went on to discuss how the experiment was co- conducted in such a way that they avoided all possible confounding variables. Those Those variables I mentioned... You know, they specifically mention those because we have evidence that those already cause uh, correlations among fMRI scans. And then, yeah, the results were uh, quite good. Um, The experiment revealed a significant effect of neural similarity. So a dyad, one standard deviation more similar than the mean, are 20% more likely to have social distance that is one unit shorter. So I'll explain that in one other way. So a dyad, once again, that's just two nodes in the network. They're one standard deviation more similar than the average similarity of f- fMRI scans. They're a standard deviation more similar in fMRI results. Okay. Uh, when you have that, uh, that also means that they're 20% more likely to have a social distance that is one unit shorter. That makes it that much more likely that they're going to be that closer in, in their social network.
1: So by one unit shorter, do you mean one unit shorter it matters. than what? For
0: every standard deviation, it's one It's it's one unit shorter.
1: I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. That sentence That's has a lot of in, in it. So just
0: to unpack it just a little bit more, one unit shorter in social distance. Um, for listeners that are on LinkedIn, think about it that way. It shows um, like first connections, second connections, third connections. A first connection is someone you're actually friends with. A second connection is a friend of a friend. A third connection is a friend of a friend of a friend. So that's kind of um, how network
1: scientists think. Okay, okay. Huh, okay. That's that's intriguing. They it's very intriguing.
0: went on to say um, and to explain that neural similarities significantly improve predictive power of models that only use observable demographic differences. So... Let me explain what this means. They compared the results they got in their fMRI uh, social network experiment to a similar model that did not include neural similarity. Right? They didn't. They compared it to a similar experiment that didn't use fMRI scans. Neural similarity added significant predictive power in determining the social distance of two dyads. Basically, what that means is we already know that visual visual demographic properties are predictive of network distance between two dyads due to past research. And this study, the one in question that we're talking about, showed that even when you are using visual demographic properties already, which one would suspect are quite powerful, the neural similarity data increases the predictive power of the model significantly. Um, I'm kind of surprised by that
1: because it's kind of like... Go ahead. So just just to see if I understand, uh, basically what they're saying is that this is powerful enough that that it wouldn't be a redundancy at all to include this exactly. if you're trying to predict. Like it's worth adding. It's really worth using this as well as your other tools. It isn't like, oh, this is useful, but it's, it's, it's useful by itself. But if you're already doing this other stuff, then there's yep. no point in bothering with this. It's like, yeah, it's okay, not washed okay, out by the power
0: of the previous data, which is that's awesome. That means it's like significant, you know, it's 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 as good or better than lots of visual um, cues, you know.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
0: um, they were pretty thorough. They just did a lot of tinkering with the data. Um, they removed direct friend dyads, so like in LinkedIn, the LinkedIn analogy I was using, they removed those first connections, um, just to see if the results were still good. Right. So. For anyone who's like just looked at data a little bit, you know that if you're looking at a million things and the average is X, that average could could be caused by just a few huge uh, outliers or something. And so they're like, "Well, let's just rec- remove direct friends because that does seem like a direct friends seem like especially different than second to third uh, differences in networks." You know, just just for good measure. They they removed that from the data and just to see what happened. Results were still great. They combined all non-friends into a single category and they still got great results. So basically they stopped comparing direct friends to see if neural similarities are predictive, even when the people aren't friends. And they found that yes, neural similarity predicts network distance, even when no direct friend dyads are included in the data. So that's, once again, that's pretty cool too. That's, it was probably a good thing for them to to, to try yeah. that out as well, because I can see how it would be quite possible that you know neural similarities maybe among friends are so great that all the data looks good, even though it's only the friends that are skewing the data to look good.
1: Huh, that's very interesting. I'd like to. I'd love to know like how this translates directly to to like the behaviors between these people. You know, like like how does this? You know, everything we're seeing they're seeing in the brain that's got to translate into something so i'd love to know i'd love to have a better understanding of like like uh like uh, the things you you were listing before like um what was it narrative interpretation and effective responding well, we, attention in a allocation.
0: way we do kind of like, know well, like we don't know what those brain regions cause necessarily anyway we do know about openness and extroversion
1: right we, we know we know they're we know they're activated in such and such situation. But yeah, it's like, past how, data how you, shows that openness
0: and uh, extroversion are related. And this data shows that certain regions of the brain are related on fMRI mm-hmm. scans. So, you know, I would hazard a guess that they those regions that are most correlated in this study may have something to do with extroversion and openness more than the other three big five. Mm-hmm. it's a really good question though because that once right, yeah right. i see why you're actually asking that because once we have the answer to that question then that directly relates to physiotype
1: right then we can we can use this you know like i'm not sure yet how yet but i'm you sure know, there's a use i have for no
0: idea there, there absolutely might be data there probably is data out there that correlates uh these brain regions activities with behavior so It would be great to look at those studies now and then kind of bring it back around to this one. And then then we'd be able to tie it in with physiotypes quite well. Yeah, me too. This is a good paper. I like this paper. A couple more notes I had. Uh, Network proximity is associated with neural similarity in specific regions of the brain. They mentioned um, I am not a big uh, neural guy. Uh, So most of these are just like things I may have heard of briefly once in my life a lot of them I've never heard of at all, but if the listener doesn't want to read the paper and is curious, I'll mention them. Ventral and dorsal, once again, these are the, breed, the regions that were most correlated in fMRI scans among uh, the network. Ventral and dorsal striatum, okay. right nucleus, acumbens, right caudate nucleus, left caudate nucleus, left putamen, right superior parietal lobule, and left inferior parietal cortex. Just, it's Greek to me. It doesn't doesn't mean much to me. But maybe someone else will enjoy yep, that. We brought that up. Um, one more note. Neural similarity differences across levels of social distance. So apparently distance 1, 2, and 3 dyads are all fairly different in terms of neural similarity. So basically, I think that what they're saying is like distance 1 dyads are quite similar in neural uh, patterns. Distance 2 dyads are much they're similar as well but not as similar as distance one distance three are similar as well but not as d- similar as distance two and after that it kind of falls off it's kind of like random after that point right um yeah basically okay. if you looked at distance four dyads you wouldn't well you wouldn't publish the study because of publication bias but it wouldn't be interesting <laughs> you know it would, it wouldn't be uh, compelling for anything <laughs> which kind of makes sense i mean distance right, for right, in right. a network is like that's quite distant
1: yeah i was just thinking like this this is this is great with like i think people intuitively like oh i've got a friend that you would get along great with you know or like like when you're looking for a new group of friends you go through friends of friends you don't you don't I mean, I mean, obviously people can go through other routes and like say hi to random people on the street, but it's so much more efficient to just, Oh, Hey, friend of mine, introduce me to some of your friends. And you're much more likely to find people that you become friends with. Um, And I think this, this demonstrates that pretty well. Um, And again, like if you were to like play this out, right. To like try to get to a, to a a four dyad, right. Like. Uh, I know or you know me, Colby, and I know this guy I go fishing with and he knows this old lady at a nursing home and she knows this really old guy at that nursing home that is a fisherman and really likes uh reality TV like like every time you. Every time you add a number to that dyad it becomes like exponentially yeah. less useful yep. to you cold. Yeah, I think. So yeah. I this is interesting. Like it's like it's stuff that's like intuitively makes perfect sense but I think we've at least I've never yeah. really put much thought <laughs> you know, into
0: it. I uh, I think the reason for that is because well it's like if there's similarities between level 1 dyads but they're not 100% similarities Cedrus paribus, all other things equal. That's exactly what you'd expect. You'd expect it to just die off on average, you know. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's also intuitive. It, it's not like intuitively it's not surprising, but it's also is kind of surprising. Oh, well, like fMRI scans are correlated. That's pretty cool. Um, who was yeah, it? There is yeah. I don't think I'll ever remember the name. I'd have to look it up. But some mathematician said um, one should never attempt a proof unless the theorem is almost obviously true we test things because the hypothesis seems true we don't we don't come up with like well I, guys i just came up with the worst hypothesis ever this is what i want to do my phd on um I, it's almost certainly going to be wrong but let's <laughs> let's go for it guys
1: like <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if if we had infinite time and infinite use resources as a society that you would know what be I worry the perfect about way sometimes? to do science.
0: <sighs> like I just got really depressing about <laughs> is publication bias. Like that's oh God. got like if you think about it, publication bias it has got to be a gigantic problem, right? Like you don't get good results or the results that you were expecting. Oh, there's no correlation. Eh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna stop right here. Like, like you already spent you know five thousand man hours on this project and maybe you're like almost done, but like to actually like wrap it up and get it published, that's going to be another, you know, 20% of the project. You might just stop. You might just be like, yeah, we, we're we done. Which is, I mean, which yeah. is like, I totally understand. I totally understand. But like if that hap- if so if for every negative result, or if, if for every positive result, there's another very negative study that someone did, but was just like, this is stupid and boring and not fun. I don't want to publish this. Then that would mean that All of science is is complete garbage in a trash in a wash, literally. I don't think it's a one-to-one ratio, okay? Because that's why we (laughs) test hypotheses that we think are correct. I don't think it's a one-to-one ratio. I don't think science is garbage. But, like, it's a legitimate problem, right? Like, that uh,
1: man, it's kind of... I hate to think about it, but... Yeah, yeah. And think about, like, all the thousands upon thousands of wasted man hours of people trying to prove the same hypothesis over and over and over again and then dumping the project most of the way through because they think no one's ever tried to test this hypothesis before when really uh 10 15 other scientists have tried this and they just didn't bother to publish because <laughs> and the, and it the wasn't the results guy does
0: this research project and just because well odds are uh he gets good results that he wants to publish And there you have it. Oh my god. I know. I'm sure that doesn't happen all the time, but it's gotta (laughs) happen sometimes. Very depressing. Um, For sure, for sure. That's why it's important (laughs) to have to to have a good hypothesis. Like that's why. To have a hypothesis you believe. Yeah. (laughs) So you're not wasting time. And also just publish your results no matter what. I don't know if I would do the same but but
1: ethically you should <laughs> um if 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 we had an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of resources as a society the perfect way to do science would be to test every single conceivable hypothesis oh, no yeah. matter how stupid it is but we don't have an infinite amount of time and we don't have an infinite if amount of resources <laughs> and i bring that down to a personal level level me alex garcia have a very limited amount of time and a very limited amount of resources so i'm not going to be testing a hypothesis i think is stupid even if in theory it's for the fact, if you did
0: have an infinite amount of time resources and well it's adding computational power you wouldn't need science because then you could just use the principle of determinism and look back at the big bang you know 13 billion years ago and then you could predict the future you know harry selden uh foundation mm-hmm. series style that totally works given 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 infinite computational power <laughs> and uh you know you know that right you you know about that theory that the principle
1: yeah i i believe quantum oh, physics gosh, is darn to it th- let's just punk, ignore quantum physics a hole in that idea, don't say though. that <laughs> 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 i am benjamin is listening somewhere sorry, I'm shaking sorry. his head profusely. a 100 years ago
0: what i said is true <laughs>
1: And who knows, maybe
0: quantum, maybe the uncertainty principle is just a result of some fundamental inability of ours to measure things. And there is theoretically some way to measure probability fields, which give you 100% certainty. Why it sh- could be. Maybe. Could maybe. be. <laughs> Let me just hold on to this. <laughs>
1: Actually I don't know. Why is that
0: depressing for me? That should be actually be freeing to imagine that the future can't be predicted. Okay, uh anything I missed on this study, any questions you have that I might have uh skipped over?
1: No, no no questions here. Um if the people if the people listening have questions, um please comment them on the Reddit because we'll be keeping an eye out and trying to answer as much as we can. Um but, you know, we are not neuroscientists, and we are not I move. And we're not network scientists. scientists. So, yeah, and we're not network scientists or machine but learning scientists again, either. I don't know. So, That's a cop-out. You know. It is a cop-out, uh, most definitely. That's me saying if we get an answer yeah. wrong, you no, can't but I'm blame us. No, just saying,
0: um, yeah, you know, a little bit of elbow <laughs> grease, average intelligence level, you can figure out anything you want to. I don't think, uh, you know, at a certain <laughs> point, you have to hold yourself responsible for your mistakes. This is coming from a guy who who makes a lot of mistakes, so I'm not talking this about you, guys. I'm is, talking about myself, definitely.
1: This is coming from the same guy that just tried to claim well, was, the universe is deterministic. It's,
0: <laughs> quantum mechanics <laughs> didn't come up until like the 30s or something, right? Give me a, some time to get around to it. This, it's barely 100 years old right i don't know so I, i'm a am a newtonian guy yeah
1: yeah <laughs> we we can tell i guess that's it i think that's it i think that's it um yeah good notes any questions for you from i you think you had the harder paper i stopped the and recording?
0: there's a bunch of open questions that I don't want you to try and answer now for me because I just don't have the, uh, like I said, don't have the firepower today. But uh, thanks for doing your paper. That one was much more difficult mm-hmm. than mine, I think.
1: Uh,
0: physiotype has uh, is has been interested in brainwaves for quite a while, and we actually have done some preliminary research that we need to continue. Um, but it is high up on our um, high up on our list of research projects. Uh, I think we're that's probably what we're going to end up putting most of our work into i don't know we've talked about this a little bit yeah we do anticipate brainwaves will be indicative of um physiotype Uh...
1: specifically eeg right that's that's what we were looking at yeah yeah we have an eeg reader and everything so we're committed we're committed to this this isn't just this isn't just reading papers about eegs this is like We've gotten some people to sit down and let us read their brainwaves, so we should. We, I mean, we have to. We have the supplies. We oh, and, probably invest and listeners, more time into if it, you have a um,
0: consumer grade EEG, they do exist. Get in touch with us because we may need your help later on down the road. Or a non-consumer grade EEG. If yes. You, if you're a doctor who works in a hospital and it's just like, sure, why not? Yeah, <laughs> you could help us out. Awesome
1: yes i you know I, that didn't even occur to me but you're 100 percent right um please if you have eegs get in contact asap sooner the better um because we we do really want to start moving forward on this stuff soon um we're just kind of working out the last mostly we're of just busy and lazy and whatnot
0: <laughs> well alex is busy i'm busy and lazy <laughs> <laughs>